And uh, thank you. And let's pray and we will begin today. Father God, thank you so much for today, this beautiful day, this beautiful sunshiny uh, day that we have. Thank you for the beauty of the fall colors and um, just, Father, the ways that you shower us with your love in your creation and through your word. And just pray that, um, that we would glean from that today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to begin with a, a little bit of a look back. I know that technically we began with, um, oh, babies. Oh, look. Isn't that a cute one? Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, go back. We're going to actually take, go back a little bit. I know we started in 4B uh, this week, but we're going to start at, in um, 1 John 5, 3 to uh, begin because it gives us some context for the few, first few verses that we studied this week. So beginning in 1 John 5, 3, it says this, in fact, this is love for God to keep his commands and his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So let's follow the logic of these few verses. John is saying that to love God is to keep his commands. And those commands are not burdensome. Why? Why are they not burdensome? Because everyone who is born of God is able to keep those commands. Not because of or in our own strength, but through faith in Jesus Christ. We are able to overcome them because he is the overcoming one. He is the one who is greater, that is in us, and is greater than the one who is in the world. He is our victory over the world. He is our victory over sin. He is our victory over false teaching that would attempt to lead us astray. He is our victory, in fact, over anything and everything and everyone who is opposed to God or contrary to God's truth. Now, John is going to turn from here back to one of his favorite topics or one of his favorite ideas, and that is Christology. He's going to turn back to an understanding of who Jesus is, and naturally that is going to lead uh, to, to a, a, the Christology of the secessionists, to talking about the Christology of the secessionists. And he's going to talk about, in verses 5 through 12, testimony to the truth about Jesus and who it is that testifies or what it is that testifies to that truth. Beginning in, and I'm going to reread John 5.5 5 here, beginning in John, 1 John 5.5. 5. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one, meaning Jesus, who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. Now, he's going to go on to say that the, the blood and the water testify, and the Spirit testifies, and God testifies, and they are all in agreement with one another. So let's begin, before we pick this apart, let's begin with why multiple witnesses? Why is it so important to him that we know there are multiple witnesses to the truth about Jesus and that they all agree with each other? And that is because multiple witnesses, multiple agreeing witnesses, were required both in Jewish law and in the New Testament. This isn't the only place where it talks about that. In fact, it is why Jesus' trial was illegal. They had multiple witnesses. 
that did not agree with each other. So uh, it's very important that, that uh, he tells us this. And, and in Old Testament law and in, the New, Te in New Testament times, um, there needed to be at least two or three witnesses in agreement with one another for there to be any sort of legal decision. So John is actually going to give us four, as I said, the water, the blood, the spirit, and God. There are, there's some disagreement over whether the spirit and God can constitute a single witness or two, but John does list them separately in this passage. So John is making a legal argument here, and he is saying, look, the truth about Jesus would stand up in any court. This is, we can know this is true because of the testimony and because of those who testify to it. So now, what's the deal with the water and the blood? What's going on here? What is John saying? Well, first of all, I want you to know that, that there is disagreement in the scholars, and you can read really wanky, far out, different ideas about what the water and blood are, and I'm not going to waste our time with that. I'm just going to mention a couple things and try to get to the crux of it. Understanding three things, though. We need to understand three things before we get into this. First, John's original readers knew exactly what John meant uh, when, when he wrote this. He didn't have to explain it because they knew exactly what John meant. Secondly, we will probably never know this side of heaven exactly what John meant. I think it's, it's really probably impossible for us to say this is what he meant, especially on the water, not so much on the blood. And thirdly, we need, need to keep the context of this letter in mind when we're deciding what the water and the blood mean and how it is that they testify. Um, now, we know that he says here, he says, he doesn't just say he came by water and the blood. He says he did not come by water only. That would seem to indicate that there, this was something about which John and the secessionists agreed. That the secessionists were saying that Jesus came by water only, not by the blood, but by water only. And John is saying, no, 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 no. He didn't just come by water. He came by water and the blood. And so this water part, it seems that it would be what, uh, something that they agree on. The blood part is where there is disagreement. Uh, or where the disagreement lay between John and the secessionists. So what does he mean when he says Jesus came by water? That's the harder of the two to figure out. Uh, and there are a lot of different answers. I'm going to give you two possible answers and tell you which one I think it is. It could refer to Jesus' birth, and the water then would be amniotic fluid, that he came by water. In this case... Um, in the case of his birth, if, if he's saying that the coming by water is Jesus' birth, John would be combating the teaching that Jesus wasn't fully man. He'd be saying, no, 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 no. He was born just the way everybody else is born, conceived differently, but born by water, and um, that that means he's fully man. So to say that he was born of water in this case would be to say that he is fully man. However, as we said, it doesn't appear um, that, or what, what it appears that this is something about which they agreed. And so he, he isn't arguing with the secessionists on this one. 
Uh, and to say, if it's his birth, then that is something about which they disagreed. We've talked about that before, that they didn't hold that Jesus was fully man. So um, I, don't think, I don't think that that's what it's talking about. I actually think it uh, more likely refers to Jesus' baptism. And not just his baptism, but the fact that he is the one, remember John said, I baptize you with water, but one is coming that is greater than me, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And we're told in the, in the Gospel of John that it is Jesus who sent the Spirit uh, to live in and among us. So he's, I believe that the water is that, referring both to Jesus' baptism and the fact that he will, would one day give, and he did give and send the Holy Spirit. The secessionists agreed with this. They agreed that Jesus was baptized, and they agreed that Jesus was the one that sent the Holy Spirit. In fact, they believed they had the true anointing of the Spirit. That's what John is arguing against, that they don't. But, th but this was, a, this was a, a topic of agreement between them. Um, now, what about the blood, then? If, if, the, if, the, if the coming by water is Jesus' baptism, what does the blood refer to? Well, it refer and you probably figured this out, it's a way to refer to Jesus' atoning death on the cross. The blood of Christ, we, we talk about, and, and we know that that is shorthand for his atoning death on the cross. Here is where there was disagreement between John and the secessionists. Remember we talked about earlier that the secessionists claimed to not have sin, to not have sinned and to not have sin. That would mean they would have no need for a crucified Savior. And so in all likelihood, they were at least downplaying, if not denying, the necessity of the cross of Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And John is saying he wasn't just baptized, he was crucified on our behalf. He is our atoning sacrifice, he is our halasmos. Uh, and that's where we disagree. John will have none of this idea that the cross of Christ is not central to our faith, because apart from the cross, there is no life. Life is found only in Christ, and only because of and through his death and resurrection. Um, but what then, in what sense, do the water and the blood testify to Jesus? We can say, okay, yeah, we agree he was baptized. He, we agree he died on the cross and rose again. But how is that testimony? In what sense does that testify to the truth about Jesus? Well, if you look back in the Gospel of John, both in John 5 and John 10, there were places where people did not believe the testimony about Jesus. In fact, in John 5, Jesus even said himself, if I just testify about myself, that means nothing. I'm just one testimony. So, but, but I have another te one who testifies for me, the Father. And if you don't believe that, believe based on the works. Believe based on the miracles. Believe based on what I have done. And I believe that's what John is saying here. Because if you take Jesus' baptism and his, his death and his resurrection, that forms like a frame on Jesus' ministry. And I believe that John is saying what is testifying here is the work of Jesus Christ, is, is everything that Jesus did in his ministry uh, testifies to who he is. So it would be the work or the works of Jesus, including his death and resurrection, that testify to the truth of who Jesus is and testify to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now he's going to add a third witness, the Spirit, to this. 
He says, and it is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. So the Spirit is an inner witness to the truth about Jesus Christ. If you read the Gospel of John, uh, chapters 14 through 17, there is a plethora of um, teaching about the Spirit in those chapters. And, and just a little bit of what we learn in, in John 14, 17, like it says here, it, Jesus says the Spirit is truth. He is the Spirit of truth. And elsewhere we learn that. We learn in John 16, 13 that, that, G, that the Spirit leads us into truth. He teaches us truth. We learn in John 14, 26 that the Spirit helps us to discern truth. Now that's not all the Spirit does, but that is a lot, a, a lot of what the Spirit does is helps us understand, learn, and discern truth. And it is the Spirit inside of us as an inner witness that testifies to the truth of and about Jesus Christ. Have you ever wondered how someone goes from unbelief to belief? That is the inner witness of the Spirit of God of the Holy Spirit. I heard about a man, uh, heard his testimony, he was in prison, and all he did was read the Bible from cover to cover, and by the time he finished, he was converted. There's only one witness he could have had there, right? The Spirit of God working in, in his heart through the Scriptures. Um, and so the Spirit is an inner witness to us about the truth, but that is not all that he is saying, because the Spirit is also uh, a witness. He also testifies through the church, through believers, and through Scripture. We read, in fact, John's own testimony in John 19, 35. I love this, because this is John. I can just see this spitting out of his mouth. He's so excited. He's talking about what he saw at the foot of the cross, because John was really the only disciple that was willing to stay close, and he saw it. And he's going to tell you, I'm telling you guys, I was there. I saw it. And just after he talks about the spear thrusting into Jesus' eyes, he says the man, meaning himself, the man who saw it has given testimony and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth and he testifies so that you also may believe. He's saying, I was there. I saw it. I know that it's true. And so he's saying that, that his own testimony is truth, but not just John's testimony. The testimony of the church, of believers, both in John's day and today, the apostles, the prophets, and even us, testify by the Spirit to the truth about Jesus Christ. Through our words, yes, but probably even more through our lives, through how we live our lives. It is a testimony. We got a call at Cornerstone after we played a volleyball game at, at Brownell Talbot. It was a mom whose kid goes to Brownell Talbot. And she said, I just got to tell you guys, I've never seen a school like yours. The way you supported your team positively, I didn't hear one, because she didn't hear me, one complaint against the officials. It was me and the athletic director, who also goes to this church, going, this, this is not legal. But other than that, she didn't hear us, so that was good. Said, I've never, I've never seen a school so supportive, so positive. I look forward to having your school come back. That is the witness of the Spirit through our lives, through, well, their lives, 
um, to, to the truth about who Jesus is because our lives have been changed. And these witnesses, they're all in agreement. The water, the blood, and the spirit all see the same thing. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is life. Jesus is the truth. In short, he is Messiah. Their witness is in agreement. And now he's going to add a fourth witness. He's going to say, and we have the testimony of God himself. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God, which he has given about his son. Whoever believes in the son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be, whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his son. And this is the testimony God. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. Now, verse 9 here is actually a conditional statement, one of those if-then statements. And what it actually says, it's not, not translated in the NIV, but what it actually says is if we accept the testimony of people, and we do, Surely we must accept the testimony of God, for God's testimony is far greater and more trustworthy than man's. John's church was struggling with com competing human testimonies concerning Christ, concerning truth. Were they to believe the secessionists or were they to believe John? And so John pulls out the big guns and he says, you know what? Why don't we see what God has to say about his son? Let's see if we can believe God's testimony. And ultimately, the argument of the secessionists or anyone else who would argue against Christ and argue against the truth of the gospel is not against John or the church or us. Their argument is with God and what God has to say about his son and how God has testified concerning his son. At his baptism, when he descended, the spirit descended as a dove, and God said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. At the transfiguration, where Peter was like freaking out, going, do we need to build you guys houses? We got Moses here, we got Elijah, do we need to build you guys? And, and God broke in and said, this is my son who is well pleased. Listen to him. I think he was kind of saying, shut up, Peter, and listen to him. God has testified about his son on the cross and through the resurrection. He has testified through scripture from Genesis to Revelation about his son through the prophets and the apostles and teachers. God has testified concerning his son. And in our hearts, God has testified concerning his son. And here is the testimony God gives. Life is found solely in Jesus, in the Son of God. Life, eternal life, is found nowhere else. That is why John is so passionate here, because the stakes are so very high. We must not, we dare not miss or dismiss this truth, for eternity lies in the balance, both for believers and unbelievers both for those who know Jesus and those who do not. We must not only accept the truth about Jesus, 
we must extend that truth and offer that truth to others. Well, in, in verses 13 through 21, John's going to give his closing thoughts on this letter. And, and there are, he's reinforcing themes from throughout the letter. I don't know how long your list was when I asked you what themes are, do you see in here, but there were just all kinds of things. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, he talked about that. Oh, yeah, and he talked about that, too. And he's reinforcing these themes. There are a bunch of them in these verses. But again, we see, again, we see his two primary purposes, to combat the heresy of the secessionists and to reassure his discouraged church members. John wants to make sure they know what they know. As the woman who discipled me as a young believer, her name's Jeannie Mayo, discipled me as a young believer, she loved to say when she knew something with all her heart, she said, I know that I know that I know that this is true. And that's what John's telling us telling us, I know that I know that I know this is true. Beginning with prayer and also in reassuring his believers, he says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. So here's this first thing that we know. We know that we have eternal life. That He tells us flat out, he does this in his gospel too, the purpose of his letter. So that they will know that they have eternal life in Christ. John's writing to believers here. In the gospel of John, he was writing so that they might know Christ. Now he's saying, you know Christ. I'm writing so you'll know that you know that you know that in Christ you have eternal life. So he's, he's reassuring them of that. That eternal life is found in Jesus. And that's a recurring theme of this letter. But then what does he mean when he says, you who believe in the name of Jesus Christ? What does that mean? To believe in the name of someone was the same as believing in the person. So it means to believe in the person of Jesus. Because in biblical times, someone's name stood for the totality of that person. That's why names are so important in the Bible. And there's always a story behind the name. Uh, the one I thought of in Exodus was where Moses' first son is born. He says, and I named him Gershom because I am an alien in a foreign land. And everywhere you see that where someone says, I named him, and a mother says, I named him this because this happened to me when I was pregnant with him, or when they named Isaac Laughter. Why do you think they named him Laughter? Hello, they were 90 and 100 years old and they had a baby. Who, why wouldn't you laugh? I really wonder why, what happened to Ohel's mom that she named him that? But, but that's, a, that's a different story. I think that must have been a really bad birthing experience. So every, every time in the Bible where there's a name, there's a reason for the name. And so to believe in the name of Jesus is to believe in Jesus himself. And then he talks about prayer and getting what we ask for in prayer. And as we saw earlier in 1 John, he's saying that as we grow closer to God, our desires become, uh, come in line with God's desires. I love this quote that I heard somewhere, don't even know where, that God's will is what we would ask for if we knew what God knows. And as we become more like Jesus, as we become uh, closer to God, our will 
becomes more in line with his. And when our will becomes God's will, we know we will get the answer to that prayer. Um, I, I forgot to look the verse up, but when I was a young believer, when I was in college, uh, I loved the, the psalm verse that says, delight, yourselves, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And at the time I thought, good, all I need to do is really delight myself in God and I will find a husband. Because that's, that was the desire of my heart, was to find a husband. I did find a husband. I found a godly husband. But that is not what that verse is saying. It's saying, delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desire of your heart. Because you know who will be the desire of your heart? Him. And he will give you more and more of himself. And your, your will will become more in tune with his will. So that when we pray, we are praying back to God what it is his will to do. So that is what that means, um, that, that, that uh, our life, uh, if, if, if we see life as he sees it, our prayers will be um, ordered accordingly. And then he talks about prayer and sin, this idea of praying and getting what you want. He's like, and here's something you can pray for. You need to be praying about this. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I am not saying you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin and there is a sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue in sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe and the evil one cannot harm them. There are three big points in these verses, and I, and I don't want to stray too far off these three big points. The first one is pray for one another, especially when a brother or sister is dealing with sin, a fellow believer is dealing with sin, pray for one another. Secondly, the second big point is those born of God do not continue, and I put that in quotation marks, continue in sin. And the third one is, Jesus keeps believers safe from the evil one. So let's look at each one of those. The first one, uh, the first big point in this passage is pray for one another. That's the primary point of this passage, and I, and I had you go through that in the lesson, so I won't spend a lot of time on this. But we must hold one another up in prayer. Uh, we can't just give lip service to this, and I'm guilty of this. I'll pray about that, and then I kind of forget and one of the things I've learned is pray now. When I write on Facebook, I will pray for that. I stop. I pray. I pray now. My sister has taught me that. When I, she's like my, my best counselor, um, and I get a lot. She has, actually has a counselor, and I've gleaned a lot from, from her counselor through this. And when I'm going through something, and I was just a couple weeks ago, she'll say, Amy, let me pray for you right now. And I've learned that from, from my sister Carrie, that when somebody shares something with me that, that is a real prayer need, I said, may I pray for you right now about that. Do that with each other. Hold one another up in prayer. Take time before you even start the study to pray. You've written down prayer requests. Pray for your fellow members of your community group before you do your study. Now, the second thing here is these sins that lead to or do not lead to death. What are those? Well, death here means eternal spiritual death, what the old-timers would have called damnation. That is what it means, that there are sin, there's a sin that leads to death. Um, but he says here, I, ref I refer to those who are believers. He, he is referring to those who are believers. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to to death. And so he is talking about believers here. 
And in essence, the sin of a believer, not even in essence, the sin of a true believer, their sins are covered by the blood of Jesus. They do not lead to death because they have been covered. They do not, they cannot lead to death. The sins of an unbeliever are not covered. They do lead to death unless that person or until that person comes to know Jesus. But then what is the sin that leads to death? I believe that it would be the sin of unbelief. The sin of ongoing rejection to Jesus and his gospel. And if left that way, if nothing changes, it will lead to death, to eternal death. But is he saying here, don't pray for unbelievers? No, he is not saying that. But he is saying that the prayer is different. He's saying, pray for your brother or sister in sin. If it's a believer, pray for the brother or sister in sin. If it's an unbeliever, don't pray for their sin. Pray for their soul. Pray that they would come to salvation in Jesus Christ. Don't pray for the sin being committed, but rather for the salvation of the person so that the sin will be covered. But the main point remains that the community of faith must be diligent in lifting one another up in prayer. And then there's this idea of continuing in sin. What does it mean to continuing to continue in sin? It does not, it cannot, it would conflict with 1 John and all of Scripture to mean we don't sin at all. That is not what it means. We get saved and then we're perfect. No. We all know that that can't be what it means. However, it does mean that we do not live a life of or in a pattern of sin. That the trajectory of our life is not willfully sinful behavior. That we do not live in ongoing rebellion to God and his commands flat-out refusal to do what God tells us to do. And then finally he says, Jesus keeps us safe. From any harm? Well, we all know that's not true. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. We will be kept safe from being led astray from the truth. And again, he sees the secessionists here. They're not going to lead you astray because Jesus is keeping you safe. And we will be kept eternally safe. Satan has no dominion over us, for we are part of the kingdom of God. Now, beginning with verse, 13, or verse 18, he gives us these certainties. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harden them. That's the first certainty. Certainty. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. And we know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and the eternal life. So this first thing that we know is we know we will not continue in sin. This is sanctification. This is growing more like Jesus. I love what Gary Burge says about this. He says the quest for righteousness is supported and sustained by Jesus himself. Believers keep Jesus' word because Jesus keeps them. Isn't that beautiful? I love that thought. And that's what John is saying here. So that's the first certainty. The second certainty is we know that we're children of God. Has he told us that already? 
a number of times, hasn't he? We know that we are children of God. We are children of God, not the secessionists, not the unbelievers. We are the one, ones who are God's children. And we need that protection from Jesus that he talked about in verse 18 because the whole world is under the control of Satan. That word there for under the control literally is in the grip of. The whole world is in the grip of Satan. It is not under siege by Satan. It rests in his arms. The world is used to the embrace of Satan. So used to it, they don't even realize that that's who's embracing them. That is not so with us because we are God's children and therefore we have redemptive hope. We know Jesus has given us understanding and that is not true of the secessionists. They, they claim to have understanding, but they did not. Because of this, we know God. We know him who is true. And then he makes this amazing statement about Jesus. I believe it's about Jesus. And we are in him who is true by being in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and the eternal life. We are in him who is true by being in Jesus. Now, when he says he is the true God and the eternal life, who is he? Well, there is disagreement about this, but the closest antecedent, the closest thing it refers back to is Jesus. And I believe John is making a powerful Christological statement. He is saying that Jesus is the true God and the eternal life. And that is very high Christology, but it fits with everything John has written, both in his gospel and in this letter. And it's also a powerful way to end his letter, but it didn't end there, did it? It ended with this little extra add-on, this little addendum about being free from idols. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. There are, by the way, um, theologians that believe that this was, um, this, that the part of the letter was lost, that, that there was more after this that didn't get put in. I don't think that's necessarily true because that verb to keep literally means to guard against. And an idol is anything that competes with God in our lives. So John is ending his letter by admonishing his readers to guard against anything that would compete with God. Anything that they would be tempted to make a substitute for God or for the truth of his gospel, including the false teaching of the secessionists. So John ends his letter by reminding them in a roundabout way to guard against the lies and heresy of the secessionists. That's an appropriate ending. So how do we end our time here uh, in 1 John? There's so many things that we could talk about, but I want to just briefly mention a community that loves. Um, there's so many things we could focus on in 1 John, but, but I believe that this, this concept of loving one another is paramount to it. And I had a powerful example of that this last week through the kids, the high schoolers at Cornerstone, specifically through the girls. Now, teenage girls have a bad reputation, don't they? Especially in groups, don't they? Flashback to your teenage years. Oh, yes. I, I remember when Katie was little. She was like in first grade. And two girls down the street came to our house, rang the doorbell in order to tell Katie this. We're going to not play with you today. We're going to play with each other, and we're not going to include you. They did not know her mother heard what they said. You put girls, especially in groups of three, you got a problem. You got a problem. Let me tell you about the teenage girls at Cornerstone. A new girl came in a few weeks ago. And she has a horrible background that I can't tell you about. But she has a horrible background, a believing family. 
but she's been in trouble. And this young girl came in just before homecoming, and she literally did not own a dress that would, that would fit the dress code for homecoming. And so she said, I'm not going to go. And the other girls surrounded her and said, no, you're going to come. Come to the house that we're going to. We'll find a dress for you. Just show up. And one of the girls called one of her friends that's the same, doesn't even, this girl doesn't even go to Cornerstone, calls her friend who's the same size and said, bring me every homecoming dress you have. Girl brought 15 dresses. <laughs> the girl brought 15 dresses. I have, I have substituted at that school. I have seen this girl that entered Cornerstone. She had a blank face. She was blank. I showed up at homecoming not knowing the story till later, and she was beaming, and she looked beautiful because the teenage girls at Cornerstone have been born of God in such a way that they were willing to love this new girl in a very powerful yet practical way. That's first John. They have been born of God, and so it is born out in their lives and how they treat one another. Teenage girls, ladies, may we be women who so love God that it is born out in our lives in powerful but practical ways. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this book. Thank you for this letter. Five chapters of wonderful, reassuring, powerful truth. May it be lived out in our lives, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, ladies.